0: Man Up, the podcast by men, about men, and for men who are seeking to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Today's topic, the measure of man and the meaning of life. Are you ready? Man Up. Yes, sir. Welcome, welcome, my friends. I am your host, Jared Bolman, and this is Man Up, your podcast. For those who want to be fathers, husbands, leaders, and better disciples of Jesus, we are, as we say every week, we are friends, we are a band of brothers, we are soldiers in the Lord's army, When we work together hand by hand, yard by yard, mile by mile, shoulder to shoulder, helping each other attain the high calling of Jesus. And today, we're joined on the battlefront by one of our friends, Hal Hammond. Hal has his own podcast, you may have heard of it, the Citizen of Heaven podcast. And uh, I got the name right, didn't I there, Hal? Yes, you did. Thank you. So you want to check that out. Hal has lots of good and interesting topics that he covers. I was very fortunate to be part of one of his podcasts. I guess it was about maybe six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, it seems like. About that. Right before Christmas. And so you definitely want to check that out. These kinds of spiritual encouragement are rare, few, and far between. And so when I find one, I like to put it out there. And Hal has been gracious enough to join us today. And today we are topic, talking about, talking about. hey, I need to edit that out. Today <laughs> we are talking about what makes a man and what's really the meaning of our life. Now, Hal, you and I are both kind of nerds. We both kind of have our sci fi geek. I think we talked about that in a recent episode. We, I, I know I've earned my geek credentials. I think that you would probably say that you've also earned your geek credentials. I would. I want to think about for just a second, how men are portrayed in our culture. I mean, if you were going to look at sort of the stereotypical example of a man, I'm thinking, you know, Han Solo, I'm thinking Indiana Jones, I'm thinking even, you know, Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man, what we typically see are the reluctant hero, the self-interested hero, kind of the guy that against his better judgment eventually does the right thing. But he's usually seeking the wrong thing in the beginning. I think Indiana Jones's line was fortune and glory, was what he was looking for. Han Solo didn't want to go to to fight the Empire. You know, he considered it a suicide mission, even tried to talk Luke Skywalker into turning tail and running in the new Ho. You know, Robert Downey Jr. is probably the, you know, Iron Man, as much as, you know, as as I love that movie, that's probably the most self-interested hero (laughs) you could imagine pretty far away from Captain America and and the Superman kind of ideal that you would have saw as the masculine paradigm even 20, 30 years ago. So let's talk about how we came to that position of this is what masculinity looks like. Can you think of maybe some other heroes that are portrayed that way? Well, I can think of some heroes in the Bible that are portrayed
1: that way, frankly. you know, I can think of Moses. I can think of Gideon. I can think of a variety of people. I think that Hesitation depends on context. You know, sometimes we're hesitant to enter the fray because we're lazy. Sometimes it's because we don't feel like we are up to the job. We think somebody else would be better fitted for it. And and sometimes we're just undermotivated. And I think that is not a, a 20th century problem. I think that's probably what men have been dealing with from the beginning. And hopefully. We can learn our way out of that. Moses learned his way out of that. I think Gideon probably struggled some more than that. I think that, you know, Indiana Jones probably did a better job of growing out of it than Han Solo did, maybe a little bit better anyway. I have many issues with Iron Man also, by the way. But we as Christians, I think, need to come to Christian men, especially. Need to come to grips with the idea of of headship, of authority, of responsibility, stepping up to the plate. To use a, a sports metaphor, we can't be in a men's pod- podcast very long without using sports metaphors, right? There you go. And believe we'll use that like military metaphors in this podcast. <laughs> I have picked up on that. It's more about the military There's metaphors. We'll word. probably do some of those too. That's right. It's not always an we'll easy a thing to of do. Skin yeah, it's not a comfortable thing. It's not convenient. There's always somebody who's more qualified or whatever. But ge- lots of times anyway, I don't know about generally, but lots of times we're the one on the spot. It's like talking to somebody about the gospel. It's not about searching through my my phone and finding the right person to have the right answer or whatever. I'm the guy who's there. It's The ball is handed off to me. I have to figure out something to do with it here. That's... Yeah.
0: Not that, convenient that, a
1: convenient
0: thing to do. That's actually kind of kind of a a good segue into where I'm wanting to go with this. This idea of of really the idea of masculinity or or at least the the culturally acceptable paradigm of masculinity, if you will, was typically the man that would step up when no one else would. Right. And increasingly what we what we see is the man who rather than having that kind of fortitude and integrity, steps up because he feels obligated to, but not until after he's caused some other disaster, some other calamity. And I I think that there's a there's a little bit of an undercurrent in that depiction of how society treats masculinity or or the disposable nature of of the man. Ted and I'm thinking about that and I'm trying what I'd like to do is actually kick off with some of the lessons that were that are the spiritual kind of directions for for Really sort of stepping out and stepping up and directing us toward God. And of course, you know, a book like Ecclesiastes has got to be one of the places where you go for that direction. The end of Ecclesiastes, there's really two passages. I mean, the whole 12th chapter is a wonderful chapter of the Bible, but those opening verses, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil day comes and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Then you have this. depiction of what aging does to a man and is the diminishing of his faculties, the diminishing of his ability. And the conclusion he comes to in verse eight, which is, of course, been his conclusion since chapter one is that everything is vanity, uh, says the preacher, all is vanity. And so he says, let's get to sort of the heart of the matter, that what's really the conclusion of all of this. And in verse 12, he says, but beyond this, my son be warned after saying, hey, there is some value to writing wise things. And gathering some wisdom for yourself he says but beyond this my son be warned the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body the conclusion when all has been heard is this fear god and keep his commandments because this applies to every person now i grew up hearing this out of the king james where it says this is the whole duty of man and i actually think that that both phrases capture the spirit of the passage pretty well for God will bring every act into judgment, and everything which is hidden under, whether it is good or evil. So, Ted hot. what does it mean? Let me ask this in two parts. What does it mean to you as men that if we're going to put ourselves on the right track to be that kind of head that you were talking about, that it starts with the obligation of remembering our Creator, and why is it best that we bring that message to our children? to really get them to see it from the younger days of, of even pre-adulthood, why is, it, why is it better to learn that lesson when we're young?
1: Well, I think it's probably something as simple as sooner rather than later. You know, it's mm-hmm. When you're young, you have time on your hands, you have opportunity to fail, to learn from your mistakes. If you're trying to figure out how to be a man in your mid-40s, you're, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure in a situation like
0: that. a good you, example. And I still feel like I'm learning to be a man in my business.
1: <laughs> well, but you started at an earlier age. I know a little bit about your, yeah. your background and, and you started out like I did. You know, we weren't necessarily perfect by any means, but you, you're on the right track at least. You're, you're pointing in the right direction and we're trying to, it's like the 16 year old behind the wheel of a car. You know, he's not the greatest driver in the world, but hopefully at least he has some concept of which pedal is which and, and how to turn the steering wheel and things of that nature. When you start young, trying to build good habits, you can slow down the rate of building the bad habits. You may get some bad habits anyway, but you at least set yourself up for a little bit of success, considerably more than someone who doesn't set his foot on the road at all. So as life gets more complicated, as we enter into family stage and work stage, career stage, et cetera, there are always going to be opportunities to reinforce the bad habits. And if you can set yourself up at an early stage, remembering your creator, then you can instead set up paradigms where you can reinforce the good habits, which is considerably harder, but you can do it. And you don't wind up looking back at your life like Solomon does. You know, lots of cynical people typically call themselves realistic. You know, I don't know whether you would call Solomon a realistic person or a cynical person, but he's looking at a life that he has in large measure wasted. He (laughs) could have done a whole lot better than he did. And he's hoping that his uh, children are going to do better. If Rehoboam, what we know of Rehoboam is any indication that that, you know, that was probably a wish that did not come true. But at any rate, if you can be a young person pointing in the right direction, you know, and I try to tell people in their teens and such when, when they're, they have an opportunity to talk to somebody about the gospel. They didn't have the right words or They didn't step up to the plate or whatever it happens to be. When you're 16 years old, 18 years old, 21 years old, the mistakes that you make are learning experiences and you have opportunity to hone your craft. You have opportunity to learn more about what it means to be a man of God, a person of God. And that lesson, I don't know if it's easier necessarily to learn in your teens, in your youth, But I think it has a lot better chance of sticking because it's not as cluttered. Your mind is not as cluttered with all the negative stuff that the world has been trying to cram in your head for the last four years, 50 years, 60 years or
0: whatever. It's kind of like the principle of elasticity that when you're younger, you've kind of got the mental bandwidth to absorb, test, retry. Whereas when you're older, you may not see the criticality of the mistakes that you're making until they're full born. Sure. And and, it, it, you know, that fits really well with what Solomon said at the beginning of Proverbs when he called on his son to receive instruction and in learn wise behavior, learn about righteousness, justice, and equity. He talks about to give the the purpose of wisdom is to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discernment. And all of that's leading to verse 7 where he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And you put that beside what, we just, what you were just talking about, about building habits and training. In Ecclesiastes chapter twelve, and and something that's been said on this program and other instances, this idea of remember your creator is not the idea of mentally knowing who God is. It's to build the habits that build that relationship with God, and and you do those by seeking God for wisdom. And right. when you and, and I liked how you said that when you learn that when you're young, and yes, as uh, a guy who just you know ticked the odometer on forty five years. I still feel like I'm in training, in part because I I had a son very late in life. I mean, I was 37 years old when my, when my son was born. And so I still feel like in some ways I'm in training to be the kind of father and to be the kind of husband that I really need to be. But I fall back on those lessons that I learned about God in my youth for guidance on a daily basis. And without those lessons, and, and this really... This is really kind of a man up moment here because it's easy to say, well, you know, we re- they really should learn about him in, in their youth. It's all the onus is on us as fathers to teach right. that to our children. Ted
1: Hunt. Well, you know, what young person is going to intuitively do what is in his own long term best interest? That, that's just not how we're hardwired. That's that's not we're more interested in ice cream and comic books and, and playing ball and doing the things that appeal in the moment. That's the way that we are built. We're we're designed that way. God has given us not only the capacity for growing, but also incentive to grow, become a different Mm -hmm. kind of person, replace that natural man with a spiritual man. That's a conscious choice that we make or don't make, as the case may be. And if you can get that that diamond in the rough, that that wonderful 12-year-old, 14-year-old who is genuinely interested in spiritual things, is just looking for some direction. You know, what a great opportunity that is for a parent to to guide that process, to, to point them in the right direction. And by the way, it doesn't start when you're 12 or 14. It starts manifesting itself somewhat more when they get into that kind of age. But if before that, even all the way to the cradle, basically, a parent is setting the child up for, for spiritual endeavors, Getting them involved in in Bible classes and telling stories. We're doing a parable study right now, and the parable study is a that, great study. And the the impetus behind this material that I wrote was the stories that I told to my children when they were little. They they always wanted to hear a story that Jesus told, and so I would pop down in the bed, and, and there's this woman who she had this n- nasty neighbor. And he was always Setting fire to her plants and throwing eggs at her mailbox and all these horrible th- things. And she went to the judge and said, judge, my, my neighbor's being mean to me. You got to help me. He says, I don't care about your neighbor. I don't care about you. I don't want to do this. And just kind of telling it on a, on a four year old level, a six year old level mm-hmm. and, and getting them interested in spiritual things. They may not fully realize, probably don't fully realize that's what's going on. But Mm-hmm. you know as they become 8-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds you start putting that in more of a context helping them understand more about what it means to be prayerful, to be persistent in prayer and realize that that God is teaching us these lessons and dad is part of the solution to that. Mom is part of the solution to that. And by listening to mom and dad, we can have some reasonable confidence that we're in a path that is good in God's eyes too. And I may be a little fuzzy on what that means when I'm years old 10 years old or whatever but i know it's a good thing and it's certainly working for mom and dad so mm-hmm. that's where i want to be going i think i think that's where i want to be yeah. going and you know they they turn 14 they turn 16 they turn 21 and and before too long you got a functional christian on your hands you got somebody like my two girls who are in their early 20s now who are serving the lord on their own and making decisions on their own and don't necessarily phone home to dad when They, they have a a crisis of faith or whatever. They, they manage things on their own and make, by and large, very good decisions. That's an exciting time when you're a parent.
0: Yeah. It's not a phase I've gotten to, but even the little victories for Will, I mean, he's going to be eight years old in a couple of weeks and even the little spiritual victories for him, when you see him connecting some dots together that you know, you didn't say, here's dot A, here's dot B, and here's how the line fits between them, you start to see him taking those lessons and connecting those dots. Then what you're seeing is is that's the essence. What you just talked about there, taking those Bible stories and making them making them real to someone who's young, that that that's the essence of teaching them to remember their Creator in the days of their youth. So let's fast forward to the end of the chapter. You know, the same passage concludes with that resolution that to fear God and keep His commandments is the whole duty of man, or this applies to every person. I like the idea because it fits with our topic. You know, in the pre-show we talked about how it is that we're talking about the measure of man, that, that how do you measure a man of God? Well, one of the things is that he keeps God's commandments, but we see that he's not keeping God's commandments in a vacuum, but rather he's keeping God's commandments because he has this kind of respect that we saw over in Proverbs 1 with learning God from the wisdom of God. So in your mind, what does it mean to fear God? What is it? What does, what do we become when fear is lacking? That, that, did we just become these, uh, these rule followers or, or what happens to us when fear is lacking and how do we build that kind of fear?
1: Well, you're asking the right guy. Last year I preached a 12 part series on living in fear that was focused directly on this very topic, actually. And the premise behind the whole thing was essentially if you fear God with your whole heart, you don't have anything left in your heart to fear anything else. And oh, oh, like Psalm, Psalm eighty six verse eleven comes up. Unite my heart to fear your name. If I can turn everything over to him, and that's the way Jesus, when he talks, when Paul talks about this kind of concept of casting all your anxiety on him, uh, for he cares for you. That's Peter and First Peter. Paul talks about, about the peace of God that passes understanding. in Philippians four. It, it tends to be in absolutes, right? It, it pretty much always is in absolutes. All your care. All your concern. Well, this is a concern that's just too big for God. Oh, really? What? Let's talk about that concern that's too big for God. It, you know, what exactly would that look like? If you truly fear God, and by fear God, we're talking primarily about, about regard, we're talking about respect, uh, honor. I, I find it funny that people who think that fear and love are not compatible in a God context. All had physical fathers, you know, and, when, and I don't know what their relationship is necessarily, but most of us understand that there are people that we admire deeply that we would go to the wall for. And yet, if they looked at us sideways, we would get a cold chill up our spine. That, that's not an unusual principle. It's kind of weird when you think about it. I don't remember thinking about that when I was 12, 14, 16 years old, but it was real. You know, that's who dad was as far as i was concerned and we take I mean, that I, kind I still of-
0: have that sense when my dad speaks i mean when sure. my dad talks to me you know that there's this inherent yeah, yes sir because it it comes from that place of authority that's where that starts but you on the other hand it, what you realize is that through the consistent application of discipline that it started with this person loves you you gain this respect for their authority. So you don't want to cross that authority. And that somehow deepens that love because you, you see in that, that, that authority isn't used in a capricious kind of, I, I do this because I had a bad day kind right. of way. Well, the,
1: the 10 commandments, you know, going back to, just, but to Exodus, rather 20, 20 and 21, where Moses tells them after this, this crazy light show, and they're just scared out of their minds. And and Moses says, this is part of the plan. Do not be afraid, he says, first of all, which is kind of an interesting segue to the idea of the fear of God. Do not be afraid. God is revealing himself to you so that you can fear him. Don't be afraid, but fear. It's it's a weird contrast. That's not the only time it ever happens either. But mm-hmm. th- there's a way to have both, to, to not be afraid of what God is doing to you, what God is about to do to you but have a regard for the things that he's capable of doing and the things that he is doing to other Mm -hmm. people. And, and in that context, give him the honor that he deserves, give him all the honor that there is in that, in that situation. And hopefully the love begins to grow. I I would like to think Mm -hmm. that some of those people at Mount Sinai came to love this God that they really didn't know at all. They came to love their leader who they didn't know at all. All the adults, of course, died in the wilderness. They and they they didn't want to take the land of Canaan and
0: Kadesh Barnea. But maybe they learned from their mistake, and certainly when well. We and see that, that of, came because they didn't fear him. I mean, right. they didn't they didn't respect that he was that authority that you were talking about. And you know, by the end of the of the book of Deuteronomy, they are
1: this is a blow to the nation. How can we possibly go out go on without Moses? And to this day, of course, he's the uh, in the in the top three, I guess you would say of Of Israelite history, that is a uh, that's a respect that is earned, that is is sometimes taken for granted. But we are blessed to have authority figures like that in the flesh that we can look to, and and hopefully the way it's supposed to work anyway. Because we learned to fear dad a long time before we learned to fear God. If if we can take those lessons of authority that we learn in the home into our relationship with God, we're setting ourselves up for a bigger relationship, a greater fear, one that ultimately is going to supersede the fear of our parents. That's going to be absolutely dominating our lives. And if our parents are doing the right thing, of course, they rejoice in that. That's what they want out of us. That's what my dad wanted for me. It's what I want for my children. That is the, the governing force in our life, the governing emotion in our life.
0: Well, when you go back to your example of Moses and, and how he sort of became a representative or, or a, almost an icon for God to the people, that when Moses was speaking, God was speaking right. to them and how, you know, they lacked that fear of Moses, and so they lacked that fear of God as well. And that kept them from going into the land and, and dying in the wilderness. And, and one of the things that, that, and I like that contrast at Sinai, don't be afraid, but be afraid, you know. I remember growing up. I, I was never ever afraid that my dad was going to hurt me because mm-hmm. he loved me. But part of the fear of whatever punishment would have been deemed necessary for the infractions that I had undergone, whether I you know talked back to mom or just hadn't done something I was supposed to have done after multiple, usually multiple chances of 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 forget of uh, mercy and forgiveness kind of thing, and still hadn't done whatever was 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 supposed to be required of me. I think part of that, part of the fear of my father came from the fact that I knew that the situation was completely avoidable. I knew that this was a situation that was not the ideal situation for him because he didn't want to punish me. He didn't want to ground me. He didn't want to take, you know, know, whatever toy away from me or whatever the, the form of punishment for that particular crime was going to be, Mm -hmm. he didn't want to do that, but it had somehow damaged the, you know, the fear was always, it had somehow damaged the relationship of love. Because I know the default mode for my dad is he loves his kids and he loves his grandkids. And and I think Will gets the same thing for me that, you know, usually to correct him, it doesn't take anything more than a stern talking to. Sometimes there's a timeout involved, but he's one of those kids that have to be careful when I have a thinking look on my face because sometimes it just sort of reduces him to what did I do wrong, dad? (laughs) Not that you're thinking. But that idea of, he cherishes the loving relationship and the thought that he might have done something to disappoint me is is something that he's actually afraid of. And right. I think that factors into it too. When we learn, when we learn to remember our Creator in the days of our youth, well, and that that sense of love, that sense of
1: belonging, is going to to keep us at home. I, I guess I would say, you know, it's you think in a, in a carnal sense, in a in a physical sense, what would it take? for my child to do something where I would no longer c- consider that that one my child. The scenario is real. It does happen, but it's extreme. I have no expectation that it's ever going to come up in real life, nor do they. And that's the way it should be. That's the way children and parents naturally are. And I, I think that perhaps we have underappreciated this in it, maybe in my preaching and preaching that I've heard over the years the uh, the idea of the security of the saints uh, nobody suggests that we can't fall from grace uh, clearly people can and have and are falling from grace there's no no question about that biblically or or logically at the same time me living in some kind of perpetual state where i'm not quite sure where i stand with my father anymore god does not want us to live that way that that's any more than my physical father wants me to live that way i'm sure any number of times i'm you raising your children properly or yeah uh, there are any number of things that I fell short on. At no point did I stop being my father's child. That That's mm-hmm. that's craziness. That that shows a lack of understanding of what the relationship is. I, I am the child of my heavenly father, and I am an inheritor of tremendous things that are waiting for me after this life is over, not because I earned them or because I was good enough or whatever, but because I'm part of this family, because he has adopted me into this family, and it's a, it's a tremendous blessing.
0: Well, and that's really, you bringing it full circle back to you talking about parables of Jesus, that's really the point of the prodigal son is that God is not looking to cast people away. He's looking for people to return to him. And the son expected the very least that his father could, would do for the least of his servants. And what he got was, the what he received was the reception of the son. Right. And that's, I think that's the perfect balance of love and fear is that you know, we need to be afraid of disappointing God, but God always meets those that are striving to meet him with love. Ted Hut! Absolutely. And so let's talk about the other side. What happens, what do we become when we don't have this fear?
1: When we don't have the fear of God? Yeah. Well, I, I guess you could go, go in a couple of directions. You could take the uh, the entitled... Yeah, kind of the safety approach on steroids where I, I can't possibly do anything wrong because I was baptized in the church of Christ and, and therefore my ticket is punched and I don't have to worry about any of these kind of things. Or you can go the opposite direction where you just lose the fear entirely and, and decide that you just don't care about spiritual things. Either one is, is disastrous. They both show a lack of appreciation for the, for the relationship, for the, for the grace that we've received. I think they're equally dangerous, equally
0: catastrophic
1: for us spiritually in the long run.
0: The idea of appreciation is such an important thought when it comes to our relationship with God. And I was thinking, thinking about this the other day, you know, Philippians chapter four, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 4 and 2, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. That even, you know, the idea of gratitude that shows up in the New Testament, The but that idea of, well, I mean, when you think about the Hebrew writer and, and, and you think about, about the reverence and the awe in Hebrews 12 that we're supposed to approach God with, and, and part of that awe Is not just he's an amazing God, he's beyond what I can fathom, but it's in awe. When you put it all together with Hebrews, Jesus being the merciful high priest that we didn't deserve, Jesus coming in the flesh, you know, Jesus being a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, that he gives us this confident access to the throne of God. Part of the awe that we're supposed to have is steeped in gratitude Mm -hmm. for what God has done that he didn't have to do. And when you lose the fear of God, it really comes from a loss of being thankful for what he's given.
1: And it's kind of ironic that the author has to give this speech or essay or whatever you want to call it to Jewish Christians, because if anybody has any kind of foundation in the idea of falling from grace and and God chastening His wayward people. Surely anybody who's been reading the Old Testament for the last forty or fifty years or whatever understands this concept. These this generation of Jesus has has been criticizing. You know, Jesus refers to it Matthew twenty three. You know, if, if we had been back in the days of the of the prophets, we would have listened to the prophets. We would would have paid attention. We wouldn't have been killing them. Yes, you would have. You're just like the same people that were there in Isaiah's day, Jesus first Isaiah. Uh, there in in Matthew chapter 15, Isaiah 9, I think it is, uh, teaching for doctrines, commandments, and men. You're the same people. You're making the same mistakes. And you're going to receive the same chastening and more if you're not concerned, just like the prophets of old said was going to happen. Uh, you should know that the discipline of the Lord is real. And when he is calling you, as, as I think chapter 13 especially emphasizes this, I spend a lot of time thinking about this lately, the idea of, of going outside the camp and, and realizing that this culture that you're, that you have delighted in, that you have defined your faith by for your entire life is toxic and the people that you admire the most in the flesh are trying to destroy your faith. They're tearing you up inside. You may have to quit being a Jew if you're going to be practiced, you know, if you leave your synagogue, leave your lifestyle, other people have done it. Paul did it, obviously it may not be possible for you to it may not be possible for you to be part of this lifestyle anymore mm-hmm. now that's a tough thing to do but you know we just got finished in chapter 12 talking about god you know healing broken bones and and stitching up people who are wounded and if you're training for for the heavyweight championship of the world you're going to get beat up and and that's what god's doing with us he is training us he's disciplining us he's bringing to us to this higher level and it's going to hurt it's going to hurt a lot it's worth it. It's more than worth it. We, and we realize that. We accept that by faith. But when it starts to hurt, when, when fearing the Lord comes with a penalty, a real penalty, a heavy, heavy penalty, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. nah, I don't know about this. That, that's not what I signed up for. Yes, it is. It's exactly what you signed up for. Ten-hut! How many times did Jesus tell us this over and over again, counting the cost and, and giving your life? losing your life since so you may save it. Jesus harps on this thing, and then all of a
0: sudden he asks us to actually do it we we'll freak out. You think about that, and I think that's where the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and the idea that all is vanity and striving after the wind, that you know Solomon repeats so many times in that book, that's where that wisdom really takes hold, that you have to have that perspective that if there's something here that's separating you from being a full participant in the love of God, if there's something that's keeping you from fearing God the way you should, you have to realize that it's, it's, it's dust on the wind. You're not going to sure. hold on to it anyway. I mean, like Jesus said, what would you give in exchange for your soul? Because I'm telling you, if you're going to try to save your life, you're going to lose it. And that lacking of fear of God, I don't think always makes somebody who quits attending worship service who who's no longer wearing the name Christian. I think sometimes the fear of God is someone, or the lacking the fear of God is someone that looks at life and just sort of gives up on the godliness that he ought to be, that he ought to be doing because it costs too much. And, and that's really where, you know, when Solomon measured his life and, and he was talking about all being vanity and, and striving after the wind, you know, trying to catch the wind kind of thing. I, I love that metaphor. I love that picture of you just, you see little kids do that all the time that, you know, big wind comes up and they, they just try to grab things out of the air and, 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 and because it, there's nothing more fun than sticking your arms out, trying to block the wind on top of the, you know, <laughs> something and seeing how far it'll push you back. You know, if you want to stand here at the end of the hill you may get trouble. But as an adult, you realize how foolish trying to, the wind really is. You're not going to, to contain it in anything. I mean, you can take a mason jar and clap a lid on it really quick and wind is not going to come out of it. Yeah, you know, when you open open the top of the mason jar. And that sort of fits with what we see in First John chapter two, which is another one of those passages that we wanted to get to. But first John chapter two, verse fifteen, John really puts kind of a pointed expression to this to his reader. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. What does this mean for us in terms of having aims in this life? You know, obviously, John does not, John is not saying that God did not give us things to love that are in this world. I mean, we're commanded to love our wives, we're commanded to love our children. But then Jesus puts that in perspective and says, whoever loves father or mother more than me, cannot be my disciple. So what is John saying here when he says, do not love the world or the things that are in it? Well, first
1: of all, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. I said, Isaiah nine and then Isaiah 29 before I, I, that didn't sound right. So I wanted to make that brief correction there. But, but first John is, is fascinating. I went back and counted a couple of years ago or so, 22 times John uses the word world in, in his epistle here in first John, virtually every one of these, if not everyone, there's an argument about a couple of them, but pretty much every single time when he says world, he's talking about the sinful world. He's talking about the, the people out there as opposed to the people who are in here. This epistle does a, a, a great job of contrasting the essentially the haves and the have nots, you know, you go back and look at chapter uh, chapter one. In verse uh, 3, that we have fellowship with the apostles. Verse uh, 7, we have fellowship with one another. Chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father. Uh, we have an anointing in verse number 20. Uh, we have confidence before God. Chapter 3, verse 20, uh, 21. Uh, later on in chapter 5, it talks about how we have eternal life. In verse 13, we have the request which we've asked of him. Verse 15, but These. this is what we have. Because we are children of God. We are on the inside. The world is on the outside. The world is out there. And when he says that, and I've, I've fascinated a little bit on this, but I'm, I'm pretty confident I'm going to stick here with the idea of the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the pride of life being sinful things. I've, I've heard preached. I have preached that what John is saying here is that these are are tendencies that we have as human beings and we need to figure out a way to direct them in the proper way. We need to, to vent these, these lusts in a, in a profitable and godly way. I don't believe that anymore. That is, I think this is talking about sin that is in the world and that too often is in us also. And the reason that we allow it in is because we love it. And and that's why John says, he says, don't love those things. There are things that have an obvious appeal out there in the world. Of a, of a physical nature, not always bad, but but lots of times it is. And when it becomes our God, when it becomes dominant in our vision, it becomes bad, whether it's money or power or whatever it is. When we love those things, they become our gods, they become our, our focus. And if we are fearing God with our whole heart, then we can't be using part of that heart to honor the things that this grace him, that are an affront to him.
0: And that's what the... Well, Lord, that goes back God, to Psalm 85, which you were talking about earlier, that right. the whole heart has to be united.
1: Right. So we need to be using the, the body that God gave us. We need to be using the mind that God gave us in, in profitable ways. And the world is pulling us in these other directions. It's pulling us into valuing carnal kinds of things. I, and I think that's what the anointing is that John talks about in John uh, first John 2.20, we have been called out of these things. We have been appointed to something greater than this. It's beneath our dignity to live in that kind of a world. And, and it starts with our value system. It starts with what we aspire to, who our, who our leader is, who our object is, who our, our model is. We have found a better way in Jesus. And now we need to go out there and act like we're living in a better way.
0: Well, the, the anointing is an interesting thought, and I hadn't even thought about bringing that in. How that, you know, the anoint, God anointed people when He was declaring something about them, when He mm-hmm. declared David to be king, right. that you know that He had Samuel go and anoint them, that Elijah was supposed to anoint Elisha, and then He was supposed to go anoint some some a couple of kings before mm-hmm. His time and work on earth was done, and all of these things yeah, it is god is it's almost like saying god is declaring something about us and it's that we it does seem to be based on the context there that we regard ourselves as jesus would have as jesus prayed in john 17 that we are in the world but we don't belong to right and the idea there of of moving away from from maybe taking things and using them in a useful way to realizing there's an inherent danger to loving the things of the world i think is it is invoking of a maturing, and I think that's a cap, encapsulating what you were talking about, mm-hmm. is is sort of a maturing of the process. You think about maybe uh, 1 Timothy 6 and 10, where he says, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and by longing for it, many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs, but flee from these things you man of God and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now, Paul has mentioned on many occasions in Scripture, there are good uses for money, whether it's supporting preachers or benevolent work for their brethren. I mean, a, a big part of First and Second Corinthians is about collecting money to send to needy, pe- needy saints in Jerusalem. So even though money is in the world, it's not inherently evil, but the love of it, this desire for more of it, when that becomes the focus of our attention, our life, that is a dangerous thing for a Christian to fall into, because that it's not that love is what we're supposed to run away from. And so when we have this this lust of the eye, which I think is it's probably financial, the the lust of the flesh, I think inherently carries probably a a sexual connotation to it, not exclusively. but I think that that is certainly one of the connotations there that this this idea of putting sex in the wrong, the wrong phase of life or the wrong relationships in life that the idea of taking something that God gave to be satisfying to the husband and the wife and bring them closer together and bond them together and making it just about pleasure and chasing pleasure, then you've, you've missed the boat here and you've taken something that God gave for a purpose and you've taken the purpose out of it. Mm -hmm. And, and while the flesh there, you know, Sark's can mean anything associated with, with the body more often than not, it has that connotation of sexual sin with it. And then the other is the boastful pride of life or the arrogance of being alive. Right. And when you look at those things, you know he uses these as examples of how the world separates us from God. And I think analytically, this is pretty easy, easy for us to grasp, but emotionally, it gets a little harder when you look at these lusts and realize, okay, as you said, these are around things. These are the love of things that, in the proper perspective, in the proper relationship, they're not inherently wrong things. Some of them are even can be good things, mm-hmm. but they're not. When they become the focus, right. then no amount of energy expended there is going to make them into what God intended for them to be. Right. So, how do we go ahead? What's well, it's the lust that's the problem.
1: Avoid the lust, get, you know, flush yourself up the lust. And I love the incentive that's given to us in verse 17 all, the world is passing away and also it's lust. the one who does the will of God lives forever. You have bargained away something that you could not keep anyway uh, on your, on your best day. You could live to be a thousand years old and you'll eventually give all of these things up. The lust of the flesh, I pride of life. These things will cease to appeal as long, as soon as you leave the flesh. You have accepted a calling, an anointing that calls you to something that will not pass away. So regardless of how much discomfort or, or unfairness, or, you know, he gets to do this and I don't get to do this, how much of that we're putting up with for three scores, 10 years, what difference does any of that make? Because all of that stuff's going to die. The, the anointing that we have received, the calling that we have received, the eternal life that John talks about in chapter five,
0: that's ours.
1: And it will be ours in full if we can just maintain this course.
0: Well, and I think that's where part of the the warning about the boastful pride of life comes in. Mm-hmm. You think about that, you have that warning at the end of James 4 about about you know, boasting about what I'm going to do tomorrow is 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 sin. And the idea there is, and this is something, you know, how I sort of worry about when I see, a, you know, Christians posting about, you know, how, you know, how much their gains are going to be this year on the stock market or, or this or that, And you know, we could be the rich fool and we could be, rather than using our opportunities to direct people to the kingdom, we could be directing people toward, you know, the latest get rich quick scheme on this side of eternity and completely miss that boat because we're not preparing for the inevitable end of our life. And that boasting of life comes from this ingrained in us that every morning is followed by a sunset and every sunset is followed by a sunrise mm-hmm. that eventually you're going to get to the point. And you mentioned the three score and 10 from the 90th Psalm, Moses's words there that we're going to get to a point where there's going to be a sunrise. That's not followed by a sunset or vice versa. Mm-hmm. I mean, every one of us has that inevitable appointment. If we're not here, when the Lord returns and that, and going
1: back to the the young people that you were talking about the, at the beginning, this is a, especially a problem for young people because they have every reason to believe that that's going to be the case. And so they mm-hmm. engage in high-risk activity and they, they eat donuts three meals a day and, and all these kind of things, living like there's going to be no tomorrow because they know there's going to be a tomorrow. And, Correct. you know, one time out of a million, there's not. And they'll take those odds. And maybe you know we could argue about how bad that is from a physical standpoint, you know, kids being kids. But, you know, you're, you're talking about turning 45. I turned 55 last year. And so by any, more reason- hair than I do. <laughs> by any reasonable estimation, there are more days behind me than there are in front of me. And and that starts turning maybe the lights people on. People live
0: to be 90, Bubba. <laughs> yeah,
1: you, you, start, you start thinking that, maybe i need to take these things seriously death is real mm-hmm. uh, death is is maybe not imminent necessarily but it could be imminent you don't know and, and you you realize
0: serious things need to be taken seriously yes yes and and i think that that's the problem with that pride of life that serious things don't get taken seriously because we're boasting about what tomorrow mm-hmm. is and I, I don't know if did you know Luther Boland Barker no know the name Okay, he was a, a gospel preacher, spent most of his time, he was He was also a Marine, he spent most of the time preaching, I think, around the Houston area, at least that's where I knew him from. Mm-hmm. Um, good man, I preached many, Luther and I, at two different times, had served the same congregation as an evangelist, and so he and I probably did 20 funerals together, over because he was the guy that they wanted to come and speak, because he knew them best, and then they wanted me to preach the funeral part of it. So, so Luke and I did probably that's that's what people did callings Luke twenty side funerals together. I remember every funeral Luther would say this. I want you to remember the old will die, but the young may die, and you have to start preparing that lesson that you talked about. You know, it seems like a one in a million dice roll, but but if you've watched biblically speaking at all, you know I talk about probability and evidences a lot. Eventually. You're not going to come up with a winning role if you keep rolling the dice the way that you're rolling them. And that's part of that, that boastful pride of life is not preparing for the inevitable end while the time to prepare for it is still there because I'm young, because I'm too busy, because I don't have the, the, the free time or the mental bandwidth, or I've got, you know, kids have baseball practice and, and, you know, we'll, we'll get to serving God when they're a little older. You're you're squandering not only your time as you're squandering their time to know. Absolutely. All right, my friends, I have to break it right there. I know right in the middle of the discussion, it's just not fair. But Howell and I had a whole lot more discussion to come and it will show up next Tuesday as a special Tuesday edition of man up be watching for that along with our regular Friday edition. And I know you're excited about this. I know you're looking forward to it because we are all trying to attain the high calling of Jesus. So, until I talk to you again, have a good day, God bless, and man up.
1: Dismissed!